on this episode of Adventures in Being Gifted. As educators and as parents, we all have good intentions. We, we want what's good for kids. We want them to be passionate about learning and kind and responsible and respectful and awesome. But I think we almost all end up in at least some habits and patterns that don't match up with those good expectations we have for kids. That and a whole lot more coming up. Our guest today, I went solo on to interview as Jill was off supporting her children in the athletic adventures. And (laughs) it was an incredible interview. I cannot wait for you to hear all that he has to contribute to the words that we use with students and the motivation that we provide them or don't provide them as far as their learning journey here at school. I can't wait to hear it as well. We were able to sit in the audience in August. Our district brought him in as a guest speaker for our professional development before the school year started. And I was just blown away by what he shared. And I think that he probably shared a lot of that in this conversation you had with him for this episode. Yes, it is absolutely incredible. That and so many more things. So take a listen. Hello, everyone. Today's guest is Mike Anderson, a teacher, an education consultant, an author of nine books, and he has developed many online courses and other resources. He is also a father and a husband and has a child who is actually an Ohio State Buckeye. Welcome, Mike. Hey, thank you so much for having me. So excited to join you. Yeah, so we, Jill and I, got the privilege of getting to hear you speak this summer, which was incredible. And so we are so lucky to have you on today, getting to share all the knowledge that we got to hear over the summer with our audience. So I would love to start with kind of your passion that revolves around teacher language. You have a book Mm -hmm. that is called What We Say and How We Say It Matter. So talk to us about how to implement like a way of communicating. So as educators, we don't kind of become these teacher bots, as you say it, and kind of even for parents too. Yeah, it's so hard because language is so complex and it's such a giant topic. Uh, that's a, It's a really important and broad question. In the book, what I try and tackle is um, I sort of hit it from a few different angles. I think one is that as as educators and as parents, we all have good intentions. We, we want what's good for kids. We want them to be passionate about learning and kind and responsible and respectful and awesome. So that's, that's like number one. And number two is that when it comes to the way we talk with kids, we all fall into predictable habits and patterns, yeah. um, kind of because we have to. You know, in, in, as a classroom teacher, if I'm transitioning my students from one thing to the other, I'm going to use a sort of a similar kind of language for doing that. If kids ask a certain kind of question, I often have a predictable kind of answer. And it's those language habits that allow us to multitask because we're not thinking quite so much about what we're saying or how we're saying it all the time. We're kind of running on autopilot. So that's not necessarily a bad thing. But the third point is that I think we almost all end up in at least some habits and patterns that don't match up with those good expectations we have for kids. So for example, when I was a third, fourth, and fifth grade teacher early on in my career, I realized that I was often frustrated when my kids felt overly dependent on me. 
they would always be coming up to me with their work mm-hmm. like, Mr. A, is this good enough? Mr. A, do you like it? And I was thinking in my head, I want you to think for yourself. I want you to look at your work and decide if you think it's good. But then I realized I was praising them using teacher-pleasing language. I would say, I really like the way you started off your story with lots of description. Or I love how hard you're working in math. So I was training them to pay attention to what I thought of stuff all the time, even as I wanted them to think for themselves. So that's one example. Another kind of classic example um, is I think as teachers, we all want kids to own their work. We want them to feel this sort of sense of the work is mine and I'm doing it for me and I care about it deeply. But then we often talk about the work as if it's ours. We'll say, okay, everyone, in this next activity, here's what you're going to do for me. Yeah. Or, you know, try sounding out this word for me. Or I want you to, and then we tell them what to do. So again, we want them to feel ownership, but if we talk about the work in this sort of teacher-centric first-person way, we're giving kids the idea that actually they're working for us, and so they feel less ownership. So that's kind of the main idea of that of that book that I wrote and the work I've done with language, is to help us figure out what those misalignments are, and then figure out how to get get our language realigned so they match up with what we want for kids. Yeah, and I think one of the most popular sayings is I love even as a teacher, mm-hmm. even as a parent, mm-hmm. if a kid brings something to you, whether it's a student or your own child, and you're like, Oh, I love that. That's so great. So what do you suggest that we kind of replace with all the I love and that pleasing language? Yeah, well, so first of all, we should be careful not to go too far. Like I think every now and then it's okay for us to say, I love that story. Or I like that picture you draw. Like every now and then, it's it's when we use it as the default and it becomes the sort of thoughtless way we're giving praise all the time. So one, so, you know, sprinkled in an occasional I like or I love is not going to send us to teacher language jail, I hope. (laughs) Um, However, I think that we could emphasize the things we want kids to feel when they are bringing us a piece of work they're proud of. You know, so instead of saying, I really love that story, we might say, oh my gosh, that story has so much action that really holds readers' attention. What's something you're proud of about your story? Or what's something that you love about your picture? Um, or if, let's three, say, three kids are all working really cooperatively together in a group, and we're tempted to go over and say, I love the way you all are working so hard together. Thank you so much for cooperating, which all both those language pieces come back to the teacher. Um, Instead, we might say, wow, you three are really cooperating and getting so much done. Congratulations. You're having a really strong work period. Yeah. So yeah. The, I find the congratulations or the, the focusing on what kids have done and less on how we feel about what they've done allows us to still give really, really concrete, positive feedback, but not to give the idea that the main point of everything kids are doing is to make us happy. Right. Yeah. And it kind of makes me think of the flip side where when we have our students who are kind of dysregulated and upset about something, what mm-hmm. is the kind of the best language that you have found work for students or your own children when they're kind of flooded with emotions and they need that help re-regulating themselves? Yeah, well, so that's interesting. I'm going to answer that in kind of two ways. Okay. So one is the teacher, the praise that we give when we say, I like the way and I love the way that can actually up anxiety for students because if they're worried that we're not going to be happy with them or we're not going to love them if they do great work, that can actually increase the chances of kids becoming dysregulated. Kids might be less willing to take a risk because they don't want to disappoint us. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So that's just one thing to, to keep in mind. But then as far as the language goes to help kids who are dysregulated, I actually think often the less language that we use, the better. Um, when kids are in the red zone, they're not ready to hear us talk a lot. It's certainly not a time to come in with a strategy they should try or, you know, trying to try to have a conversation about what they should do next time when they're struggling. I think often when kids are in that red zone and they're really dysregulated, giving some really clear, firm, warm um, redirections might help. It looks like you're feeling really upset. Go take a walk, get a sip of water, and let's talk when you're feeling calm. Or I can tell that you're feeling really anxious about something right now. Why don't you get a book and sit down and read a book for a few minutes or take a quick walk around the room and take some deep breaths and get your control back? So I think when kids are dysregulated, I think the fewer words we use, probably the better. And often there's my, – my goal is to give a mix of being really firm and clear but also warm and caring at the same time. Yeah, I love that. That's – Great advice, for sure. Yeah, it's super it's hard to do, though, because often when that, kids are yes. dysregulated, we get dysregulated. <laughs> so, yeah. Or like we want them to the immediately talk about it. And I feel like right. that's pro- that's not the best. So, yeah, great advice. Yeah, no, I mean, think think about your own, like a relationship you have with a friend or a, or a romantic partner. You know, in the heat of the moment is not the time to try to be rational. Right. You know, if somebody tries to rationalize with you when you're really mad, it's probably just going to make it worse. The, the time for rational talk is later when you've got your prefrontal cortex back up and operational. Um, if, you're, if you're working out of the amygdala, it's not a time to try and be rational. It's time to calm down. Yeah. And kids are the same. And sometimes we, yeah. we don't realize that in the moment, for sure. Yeah. You have this awesome blog. So I'm going to flip the script a little bit oh, here. And you. you, your articles or the posts that you post are extremely interesting. And the most yeah. recent one that I was reading is titled, Maybe We Shouldn't Tell Students to Always Try Their Best. And I would love for you to tell us more, because once again, this is kind of that language piece about this mind mm-hmm. shift that you're having around this topic of motivation. Yeah. So I'll tell you where the blog post came from. You probably already know this because you read the post. But um I'm a runner, and I read running blogs, yeah. and I came across this story about Elliot Kipchoge. So cool. Who, yes. <laughs> yeah, oh, my gosh. Amazing. He won the Berlin Marathon in late September of 2022. He broke his own world record by 30 seconds. He's 37 years old. He's had this amazing career. He's the mm-hmm. greatest marathoner we've ever seen. Um, I mean, he ran it at a 437 pace. Which is insane. Which is like, like my three mile. No, I'm just kidding. I, but I yeah, couldn't do I that for a hundred yards if no. a tiger was chasing no, me. No, no, no. Yeah. So, um, so then what's really fascinating about this is his coach, not long after that race, tweeted out a little video of Elliot and his running group as they were heading out for a morning run. And they go at the pace that the coach calls the Kenyan shuffle because it's so slow. Like if you watch that video, like I did, uh, you probably thought, oh, I could run that fast. Right. And the blog, yeah, the blog I read said that um, 100 of his 130 miles every week are at that really, really slow, gentle pace. And the reason for that is if if you tried to run at race pace all the time you were training, you'd be exhausted. You wouldn't be able to do it. You'd get injured. You'd get frustrated and discouraged. You'd give up. You wouldn't be able to get in your training miles. So he runs 75% of his running at a really slow pace because he cares about achievement 
And that's the part I find really interesting. And I think about in a reader's workshop where we encourage kids to find books that are good fit books or just right books. And those are books that you can read at a really comfortable pace. It doesn't take a lot of heavy lifting. You're not trying to read. So you're not struggling over every other word. You're not struggling to understand the storyline. A good fit book is one that you can really get into and enjoy, which means it's relatively easy. And it just got me thinking about how often in school we, we feed kids, kids these platitudes, you know, like you should always try your best. You should always give 100%. Or sometimes we even say ridiculous things like give 110%, which is <laughs> yep. mathematically impossible. You right. can't do that. Um, and I just, I think, you know, when kids hear that, they must either think, oh, he doesn't really mean that. Or I can't do that. And I would imagine that would be really discouraging for the very kids we're trying to encourage with that kind of language. So I just wrote the blog post to kind of pick at that a little bit and think about what, how should we encourage kids to work hard? And maybe we should say to kids sometimes during this math period, your goal is to engage with long multiplication or differential equations, whatever you're doing, for 30 minutes. Really keep most of those problems. Pick and choose the problems that you can do easily enough that you can just practice the algorithm and get really good at the process. And then every now and then, it's like sort of every now and then you do a hill sprint and running. Every now and then, pull out a problem that's a little bit harder and really push yourself and work hard at that one. And then you're probably going to be a little tired. Go back and try a few easier ones again. So that's what I was playing with in that blog post is just this more realistic, healthier vision of of what a work day would look like for kids. Because I don't know about you, but I see kids exhausted by by lunch. Yeah. And they've still got half the day to go afterwards. And it's just, I don't think it's a healthy way to learn. I don't think it's a productive way to learn. And if we really care about achievement, I think we actually shouldn't tell kids that they should always be going at 100% because that it's, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting philosophy. And I feel like I just had a conversation with a parent last week about how they're gifted child comes home and is literally exhausted at the end of the day and the parents get like an emotional heap yeah. you know at the end of the day because she has worked so hard and pushed herself so much with a little bit of perfectionism throughout the school day mm-hmm. wanting to you know be her very best for her teachers and it you know it just makes me think of this you know article that you wrote or blog post you wrote and the running analogy is just so interesting that this superstar runner is not always running at that fast pace. So why aren't we doing yeah. what you just said, like with math? I love that idea. It's really interesting because I've been inspired by that video of the Kenyan shuffle. And for the last couple of weeks, as I've been out running, I've really been working at slowing my slow runs down. Yeah, I'm running about 45 to 60 seconds per mile slower than I was before. And it's amazing how much better my legs feel, not just after a run, but the next day, like I'm more excited to go out running the next day. And then when I do my faster runs, I actually have more energy for them. So I can really see how this Hmm. could actually make me a faster runner in a half marathon by slowing down a lot of my slow runs. And I'll bet you that poor kid who you're talking about gets home, she's exhausted, she has the emotional meltdown, and then she's probably got too much homework on top of that. Yeah. Which... I remember when my son was in elementary and middle school, he viewed homework as the ultimate 
injustice and overreach <laughs> of school power. Like those yeah. teachers are going to tell me what to do all day long. And then I'm going to go home and they're still going to be telling me what to do. And I got to say, I totally agreed with I them. I do too. <laughs> it's like, yeah, why are we doing that to yeah. kids? Are we just training the next batch of workaholics? Yeah. Ah. And I, I really hope in our generation of teaching that that, you know, improves because I feel like you know, since when I first started teaching to now, it, it already is gradually getting better in some places. Yeah. But I agree. I just, yeah, homework's a whole nother. We could go on a tangent about that. <laughs> yes, we could. Yes. But I would love to dive in next about your book and work that focuses on tackling the motivational crisis with students. And, yep. you know, without the traditional extrinsic incentives, which is kind of a hot topic, you know, that we grew up with as adults, and maybe even started our teaching career using. So tell us why is it so important to eliminate these behavior charts, the pizza parties, the marble jars and all of the likes? Yeah, gosh, it's so hard. And I like most people have tried those systems myself, yep. and saw flashes of them working only to have them crumble and crash and burn and um, dissolve into disaster later on. Um, so first of all, I think we use those systems because we think kids won't want to do whatever it is that we're asking them to do. So I think the first thing we have to ask is, are are we asking kids to do things that are awesome? Like, is the work great? Yeah. <laughs> and if the work is really interesting and fun and taps into what kids care about, if it's intrinsically motivating, then we don't have to use those incentives. But it's also really important to know that there is a wide body of research that shows that the, the use of extrinsic motivational systems and the use of incentive systems does real long-term damage to kids. Um, it decreases intrinsic motivation over time. It can dampen learning. It can um, sour relationships. It can help kids become unethical when kids become you know, obsessed with grades at all costs. They're more likely to cheat. Um, so there, there's some real damages done by those systems. And um, and so I'm as when I think about the motivation crisis, I'm worried about sort of two kinds of kids. Hang on a second. All right, you'll be able to edit out that cough. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> Ryan, edit that out. <laughs> right. So I'm worried about two kinds of kids. One is the sort of classically unmotivated kid, the one who puts their hood over their head, puts their head on their desk, refuses to do work. Um, I'm clearly worried about that kid. I'm also worried about the kid who you were just talking about, who is probably a high achiever in a very traditional sense. She's good at playing the school game. She's good at doing what teachers want and figuring out how to jump through the hoops that she's supposed to jump through to get the grades that she wants or to get those achievement things that she's looking for. You know, if we were preparing her for a world of factory work in the 1940s or 50s, mm -hmm. training her to be compliant, training her to learn how to work for a boss and do what you're told, <laughs> that was actually a marketable set of skills. Um, but boy, has our economy shifted since the industrial age. So many more people are in an entrepreneurial field, they're, um, they're starting their own businesses, or they've got three or four different part-time jobs that they're cobbling together to make an income where they have to manage themselves. Um, even if people are working for a traditional company, for the most part, if a job is so sort of straightforward and algorithmic um, that, that, a, that a computer can do it, then we're automating it. 
or we're outsourcing it. So many of the jobs that are left in traditional companies require people to think for themselves and be self-managing and Mm self-motivated. So so I think that's why it's really important for us to look at this sort of now traditional paradigm that we have of kids working for grades and working for pizza parties and being managed by behavior charts as something that's not really going to be helpful for them if our goal ultimately is to have kids be self-managing and self-motivated and fired up and excited about learning so that they can, you know, take that skill set on with them after school. Yeah, I appreciate that long-term reason because I, you know, heard you speak about your book Tackling the Motivation Crisis this summer and I I don't know. I I I thought so much in the moment about how it's affecting our students day to day in the classroom, but truly that is the big picture. Students are going to need these skills that we're providing through marbles or we're, we're kind of defeating and deflating through marbles and pizza parties because that is the lifelong skill that you're going to need to do for your career and job or whatever it is that they choose to do. So if we want kids to be naturally curious, if we want kids to be excited learners, what we have to recognize is when we say, you know, if you read books over the summer, then you'll get a pizza gift certificate for every book you read. Right. The, the message we're, that's hidden in there, um, it's, it's something in psychology called signaling. We're signaling to kids that they shouldn't want to read books. Right. Because if we say, give you pizza to get you to read books, reading books must be something inherently distasteful. Right. Otherwise, we wouldn't be bribing you to get you to do it. So... So for that kid who's, they might say, oh, well, I don't really care about pizza. I'm not going to read this summer because we've made the reading now about pizza instead of reading. Or they might say, oh, I really care about the pizza. So I'm going to read the shortest, easiest books I can because the more books I read, the more pizza I get. It, it, like, it totally takes yeah. everyone's focus off where we want it to be, which is the reading. So if we want to encourage summer reading, we should do like celebrations of reading during the summer. You know, get together and have book clubs. I was just going to say book clubs. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Or come to the library and lie down on the floor for an hour and read together and chat with people about your books. Like that would be a way to foster some more interest and excitement about reading is to, to celebrate the reading instead of the pizza. Yeah. My, my daughter, who is actually a third grader this year, did Mm -hmm. a book club with her friends this summer and each person who hosted got to pick the book, but they were encouraged to read because they loved getting together and they loved socializing and talking about the book with each other. And <laughs> in some aspect, it is a little bit of a motivation to read, but yeah. also yeah. it was rewarding and, because of the actual reading. And that's what real grownups do right. is we join <laughs> yeah. book groups because we want to read a book and share it with other people. And then we get together for the book talk and we talk about the book for 25% of the time. And then That's we, right. you know, sip wine and have some <laughs> grapes and, you know, cheese and crackers and talk about our kids yeah. during the other part. It's as much social as anything else. But like that's that's a great example of how we can um, we can take what we know is really positive that adults do and mirror that in school. And I so often worry that it's like what we're doing in school is just finding ways to manipulate and manage kids to get them to learn these skills. But it doesn't feel like real work. But real people engage in book clubs because it's fun and awesome. And so why wouldn't we do that with kids? Right. Right. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) So 
I feel as, you know, an educator in the school world, lots of teachers at this point are overwhelmed. They just are with all of the things that get piled on them on a daily basis. So what could you say to our educational listeners out there that would be motivating or encouraging to help them kind of move forward with all of this language and motivation? Yeah. So hard. So one of the first books I wrote was called The Well-Balanced Teacher. And it came out of my own struggle when I was a young parent. And all of a sudden, I had two little ones at the same time. And I was a fifth grade teacher. Um, and, and I found myself getting really overwhelmed. Um, so I did this experiment one year where I decided to figure out why I felt so incompetent every year. Like, why could I not teach everything I felt like I was supposed to teach? It seemed like every April I was crossing off whole units that I wasn't getting to. Like, oh, guess we're not doing rocks and minerals this year. Um, Which I still feel like is a problem. I mean, it's still time. Totally. Time, time. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So here's what I did. For an entire year, I tracked every minute that was taken away from my teaching. So if we had a half a day for snow, which we don't make up in New Hampshire, you know, make up a full day, but not a half a day. There's a half a day. I recorded those minutes. Um, When we had an assembly, even if it was a really good assembly, like an educational one, they were out of the room for 45 minutes. That was 45 minutes I couldn't teach. I logged that. Um, When we were preparing for a band concert and kids needed extra band rehearsals, I logged it. If we had a bus evacuation drill that took seven minutes out of the morning, I logged it. So for an entire year, every day, (laughs) all the time, it ended up being over 9,000 minutes. Which felt like a lot, and I was sort of like, I can't even wrap my head around that. So where I was teaching in Portsmouth, New Hampshire at the time, I should have had about four and a half hours a day to teach because we had a six-hour school day. My kids had lunch and recess for 45 minutes, and they were off at a special area learning something with other people for 45 minutes. So I should have had four and a half, four and a half hours a day. So if you take 9,000 minutes and convert it into four and a half hour instructional days, it was, I can't remember, it was either 32 or 33 days wow. of teaching that was lost to all the little dribs and drabs. Hmm. So then I was like, wait a minute, we get a math consult who's saying that every day in fifth grade, we should be spending 70 minutes on math. And our literacy team is saying we should be doing 60 minutes for a reading workshop, 45 minutes for a writing workshop, 20 minutes for a word study. I was somebody who was often saying to teachers, like, we should be doing a morning meeting every day. Like, there's 25 minutes. I was thinking, has anybody ever tallied up all of the times that we're actually told we're supposed to teach? So I did that. It came out to five hours and five minutes a day. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) But we only had four and a half hours. Minus the 33 days. Yes. So when I averaged all that out, I actually realized I had three hours and 40 minutes Hmm. to teach five hours and five minutes of content. So for me, that was this huge, first of all, I was relieved. Oh, it's not just that I'm incompetent and can't manage time. It's that nobody can teach (laughs) five hours and five minutes and three hours and 40 minutes. And then that was when I gave myself permission to prioritize. Like, okay, I can't do all of it. What are some of the things that I keep dropping? You know, you've got 15 juggling balls in the air. Which are the ones that I keep dropping? Maybe I should just put those off to the side. I stopped caring about homework. I mean, I'd never really cared about it, but that was the year where I thought, I am not going to spend time. All the time I'm spending correcting homework, passing back homework, doing all these ridiculous accountability systems for homework. Instead, I just went to like a nice, easy, one simple 
um, short math page to practice a little math. And the rest of the 50 minutes a night was reading. No accountability system, just read. That was when I stopped caring about handwriting because we had this archaic system in the school where the third grade teachers taught cursive. The fourth grade teachers were supposed to reinforce it. And the fifth grade teachers were supposed to make kids write in it. And it was always a struggle. I thought, I'm not going to fight that fight anymore. They don't even use it when they go to the middle school. Why are we doing this? So, so if, if, if I can give teachers permission, if you're, if you're still listening to this long rambling <laughs> monologue I'm on here, if, if I can give you permission to do anything, it's to prioritize, like think about what are the things that are really most important for your students? What are the things that you're, you're willing to fall on the sword for? Make those the priority. And what are some of the other things that, that just don't need to be quite so important? Give yourself permission to put those on the back burner or shove those to the side. So much better to do a few things really well than to give ourselves this ridiculous, unattainable task of doing everything we're supposed to be doing. Because we can't. I think we can all acknowledge we can't do everything we're supposed to do. And so once we admit that and say, okay, so then I'm going to do the things that are most important well, that can really help. Not only does it like relieve us a little bit, but I don't know, for me, it gets me all fired up. Like I can get excited when I feel like I'm doing a writing unit really, really well. Yeah, for sure. Um, so that's, that's, that's the best I got for that yeah, one. Put some of those balls down and only juggle the ones that are really important. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of a fun question for you. If you had a magic wand and could change mm-hmm. anything in our education system, what would it be? Uh, can I, do I have to pick just one or can I have two? <laughs> have two. <laughs> Definitely. You can have two. All right. Um, this, these are whole other podcasts. So we'll have to talk again. <laughs> okay. Definitely. Uh, we already talked about one. I get rid of homework at yep. least through middle school. Okay. At least through middle school. The research is clear. Homework seems to pay dividends with achievement once kids get to high school. In middle school, it has very small gains in achievement but not worthy of all the time and energy we put into it and not worthy of the kids who feel like they can't play the school game because they can't get homework done. There are too many casualties with homework and in elementary school, it's, it doesn't make any sense at all. So that's, that's one thing I just did make disappear with the magic wand. Uh, The other thing I'd make disappear is traditional grades. Mm, Gosh, we could talk a whole episode about this because I wanted to ask you about this too. So just briefly, what is it that, and when, like, do you think, is it an elementary thing that we should get rid of traditional grades? Is it across the board? Well, lots of elementary schools have already done that. They've moved to competency-based report cards and, and when it's done well, it can be amazing. So I, here's, I think an important distinction. I don't think we could have great teaching and learning without assessment. Okay. Yeah. But I do think we could have great teaching and learning without grades. So there are lots of ways to assess and lots of ways we can give kids really good, honest feedback about how they're doing and help engage them in the process of thinking about how they're doing. What happens with grades is it turns into the purpose for doing the work. Mm-hmm. We start saying, if you want to get an A, here are the things you need to do. Or here are all of the points laid out in the rubric. Figure out how to get as many points as you can. <laughs> So whenever we're doing that kind of thing, we're taking kids' eyes and energy off of the learning. We're saying the learning actually isn't really all that important. It's the grade that matters. So just do what you need to do to get the grade. And that's one of the reasons, that's one of the things that can really disengage kids emotionally from the learning process. 
Well, um, and I feel like the higher up you go, it becomes almost even a competition and it, it creates lots of other things as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm actually reading an amazing book about this. So I want to give a plug to uh, to an incredible book and an awesome author. She's um, somebody I've run into at conferences and we've had cool Zoom calls and she she rocks. So the book I'm reading is called Hacking Assessment. And the um, the subtitle is 10 Ways to Go Gradeless in a Traditional Grades School. Mm. Who's the and the author? author is Star Sackstein. Star with two R's. And she is a teacher who figured out how to do this in her own practice. She was in a in a school that used traditional grades. She saw the damage. She was teaching high school, uh, I think high school English maybe. She was uh, she saw the damage that grades were doing to kids' motivation and to their to their work, and so she figured out how to do it better. And it's practical. She's the real deal. Um, I'm working with a school in Connecticut right now, a middle school, and there's some teachers there that are reading this book, and we're doing some thinking together about how they can try some of those strategies in their math classes. It's a, it's a, it's a really great read. So that's one people might want to check out if they're interested in thinking more about how to, how to get away from grades. Hmm. Uh, All right. Yeah. Well, before we have to say goodbye today, Mike, I want to talk about Ted Lasso. <laughs> so oh. we hear you're a huge fan and we are too so what <laughs> and, and you you have so many great blog posts i could go on and name some of my favorite but what is your favorite educational lesson that you would like to share with our audience before we say goodbye that you have learned from the series ted lasso oh, oh there are so <laughs> many i can't wait for season three to come out. um i would i'll just tell you on the side here that i actually was approached by a publishing company and ask if I'd be willing to write a book based on those blog posts about what Ted Lasso, but they basically wanted me to turn the manuscript around in four weeks. And I was just starting my crazy summer consulting. I was just about to go to Mason, Ohio. (laughs) I was like, I was like, I can't write a book in four weeks, even if I don't have a packed calendar. So I I had to say no, but um, that would have been great. So if people out there are listening to this and you haven't watched Ted Lasso yet. Oh my gosh, pay the six or seven bucks a month, get an Apple TV subscription for a month and binge Ted Lasso and watch it through the eyes of what he can teach us about teaching and learning. One of my favorites, it's such a simple interaction. It's in one of the first episodes. Ted is out on the soccer pitch, out on the football pitch. Um, This really sweet, nice player, Sam, has just gotten just trashed by a really obnoxious bully kind of player. And Ted Lasso, the coach, wants to help Sam kind of shake it off. So we call Sam over and he says, Sam, do you know what the happiest animal in the world is? And Sam, looking confused, shakes his head. And he says, it's a goldfish. You know why? And Sam's like, no. And Ted says, it's got a 10-second memory. Be a goldfish, Sam. (laughs) And I wrote the blog post about that episode in light of sort of thinking about how we as teachers need to have a 10-second memory when a kid has a meltdown. Yep, yep. They, 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 whatever happens, you know, they get into an argument with us, they say something mean, they storm out, they melt down, they throw a book and they run out of the room. And, um, you know, 15 minutes later, they're coming back into the classroom. We need to be ready to welcome them back with kindness and um, support, you know, to not meet them at the door and get them all dysregulated again by saying, you know, all right, Mike, are you ready to come back in? Are you ready to apologize to me for what you said? You know, some poor counselor has just finally got the kid off the edge of the cliff and here we are mm-hmm. pushing him back out on the edge again. So that was, that's one example of, of a little lesson I got from Ted Lasso that I tried applying to, to teaching is the idea of 
being a goldfish and having a short memory when kids melt down so that we can help them get back into the learning groove a little quicker. I was hoping you'd share that one. That's my favorite. (laughs) And I feel like I can take that as a parent as well and apply it to parenting because there's so many times where your children frustrate you and you want to, you know, nag on it, but (laughs) be a goldfish as a parent as well. So it's tough. It's difficult, but... So valuable. So much easier said than done. Very much easier said than done. But definitely <laughs> keeping that in the forefront. Be a goldfish. Right. right. <laughs> yes. All right. Thank you so much, Mike, for being here today. And before we say goodbye, I want to tell everybody about Mike's awesome website, leadinggreatlearning.com. It has access to all of his amazing books that he's written, it has some online courses. His blog that we've mentioned several times, which is incredible, is on there. And we will also put some live binder links in our show notes so you can check it out. Thank you so much, (laughs) Jessica. This has been so much fun. I had such a good time talking with you. You know, Jessica, I wasn't able to be at this interview and you took it solo. And I was so excited to sit down and really listen to Mike's advice and your questions to him. And I really do believe that this was an incredible episode for teachers, parents, and administrators. I think what Mike said about language being so complex um, is spot on. And there's so many things that we just don't really notice. Um, And like he even said, we get into like an autopilot mode Um, where our habits and our patterns don't necessarily match up to our good intentions that we have. So I think with what he said, and you even asked him, what what do we replace with our I likes and the words that we say? um, And sometimes those autopilot words, we have those good intentions of saying, oh, I love this blah, 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 or I love this picture, or I love this idea, or I love this you know, creation, um, is to just simply replace it with a fact and a question back to the students. And it can be an open-ended question, but those formulas, um, really have helped me get out of the mode of the I likes and the I loves with our students in the last, you know, four years or, or more. Yeah. I love how he talked about that and how it's less about us and more about them And that is our focus is the student and building them up, but it's not about us and our feelings. So I really appreciated that. And I also think it's interesting all of the things he mentioned about motivation and Mm -hmm. how we can tie in our extrinsic motivation and try to kind of wean ourselves off from that and really teach kids to be self-motivated. And in an elementary setting, that's truly hard. And I think... It's not just one of those things where we can just turn it off and get rid of all the extrinsic things, but to have a balance that works best, you know, in your classroom and, you know, do things that will self-motivate kids. And I think uh, that is something that would be, you know, taken by all of our listeners as a challenge for this upcoming school year. Um, Obviously, right now, as we're, you know, rounding third base, so to speak, of the school year, and we're getting closer and closer to May and June when school is out for the summer, it's probably not a good idea to try those tactics now if you do use some extrinsic motivators. But I know for us in our 
student um, classroom with our students in third grade, it has really helped by replacing some menial problems or tasks with real life problems. Um, For example, we actually have done a unit where the students plan a trip to a national park. And we really set it up by saying, you know, who plans the trips in your family? And that really kind of brings them to a, a realization that, oh my gosh, most of every, every parent in my life or every adult in my life have been the ones to make the decisions on the trips that we plan. So for us in our enrichment um, resource pullout program, we are finding that those real life problems tend to capture their, you know, excitement and they're motivated and they're, they're buying into our problems um, that we present for them to do the research, the critical thinking, the higher level um, work that we want them to, to do. So for us, that's, that's worked for us. Yeah. But you're right. It is, it is tough. It is tricky, especially when you've got 27 plus kids in a classroom and they're not all maybe speaking English and they're not all at the same level and, and you know, cognitive ability. So therefore it is tough. Yeah. And I think so many things that he said we know are such good practices, but it's so hard to just turn that switch. So take one thing at a time, take one thing that you heard from Mike and run with it. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Adventures and Being Gifted. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite place to listen to podcasts to hear our next episode. Share with your friends, colleagues, and anyone you think would benefit from Adventures and Being Gifted. And we want to know what you want to hear more about. So let us know by tweeting us at beinggiftedpod or emailing us at adventuresinbeinggifted at gmail.com. Until Until next time. time.